welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Gage Crowder on April 17th, Lord's Day Service. Father, we give you thanks for this Sunday morning. We thank you that you are our shield, our glory, the lifter of our head. We cry to you with our voice and you answer us from your holy hill. We lay down and sleep last night and we woke again because you sustained us. We will not be afraid of thousands for you've conquered. You have arisen, Lord Jesus. You have struck, stricken your enemies on the cheek. You have broken the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to you because you were raised Lord of life. We pray this morning as we read, as we learn, as we break bread, as we drink wine, and as we sing, that we would do it all uh, to your glory, that we would worship you with pure hearts and clean hands this morning. We ask you this in the power of the spirit that you have richly poured out on us. Amen. All right, so biblical theology, jumping back in here uh, for last time, I'll be with you. I think next week, uh, Rich Lusk from uh, Pastor at Trinity Presbyterian in Birmingham will be doing Sunday school. Um, so this morning, we're going to try to wrap up and continue, uh, bring full circle what we started chatting about last week in biblical theology. Um, remember our first week, though, just kind of a quick review uh, where we've been and then where we're going today. We'll get that down. Uh, we talked about the covenants, right? The big macro structure of the Bible. Uh, the thing that takes us from Genesis to Revelation, the big picture that we get that Jason gave us uh, are covenants, right? These, um, these bonds that God makes with humanity uh, that lead to salvation with attendant blessings and cursings was something along the lines of our definition. Um, and that these covenants ultimately culminate in Jesus Christ. And through scripture, we watch them unfold like a flower. They start as a seed and they become a big garden like we talked about last week. We're carried along by a plot that runs through scripture, which we talked about, which was this. We begin in a garden. We are exiled out because of sin. We are brought back in through an exodus. Uh, and this new garden then fills the earth. Okay, we are called we are restored to the task of Adam, which was to fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, the covenants are involved in that. And all this happens through the seed, our Lord Jesus. Uh, what we want to talk about today, I, I got a fair amount of questions, and I'd like to attempt to answer some of those with our theme that we're going to look at today, uh, that we're going to track again through Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. And that is the idea of uh, the royal priesthood. That's what we're going to look at today. Uh, how the royal priesthood links together scripture, uh, but how it also um, gives us an answer for how we are to take dominion, okay? how we are to turn the world into this new Eden, this new garden, uh, and how we are to fulfill the task that God has given us as the church. So two approaches there this morning. Uh, if we're going to talk about the royal priesthood, though, the first thing that we must do is define our terms. Uh, what does it mean to be a royal priest. 
How does scripture present the office of priesthood? How does it present the office of the king? Um, if we are to inhabit those offices, like uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.9, we're a royal priesthood bought with the blood of Christ. What does that look like? How do we do that? So what is a priest? Uh, we often quickly think, when we think of priests, what's the first thing you think of? What comes into your mind? A sacrifice, a sacrifice right? Uh, by the way, uh, any questions, I'm good to take it. I teach the Old Testament to seventh graders, so I promise whatever you ask cannot scare me. I've heard it all. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, the first thing we think of is sacrifices. Uh, that's true. Okay, priests do offer sacrifice. That's part of their main job in uh, the, uh, the Mosaic Covenant that God gives in the Old Testament. But it's much more than that. And in fact, offering sacrifices is, is really only half the story of what it means to be a priest. When we consider all that Scripture has to say about the priesthood that links Genesis to Revelation, we see that priests are not merely those who offer sacrifice, but they are guardians of God's house. Priests are guardians of God's house. So what does that mean? Uh, let's start with the first priest of Scripture, Adam. We established in our class last week um, that Adam was put by God into his garden, and that this garden was a sort of sanctuary. It was a place that connected heaven and earth. We looked at all the ways that the temple and the tabernacle were replicas of Eden, and just as a review... We said that Eden, the tabernacle, and the temple are all tree-filled places with water flowing out. They are located in the geographical east on mountains. Uh, you could only enter these sanctuaries through an eastern gate uh, with an attendant burnt offering, right? You've got the angel stationed outside of Eden on the east uh, that you must, if you want to pass back into God's presence, you have to go through the flaming sword, right? The fire and smoke, the knife and the fire. Uh, and then there is an altar immediately outside of the temple and the tabernacle that you have to cross to go in. You have to make a burnt offering to get into God's presence there. Uh, inside, there is special food. There are trees and bread. There's a tree of life with, the, obviously, the trees in the garden and in the lampstand. But most of all, the thing that connects Eden, the tabernacle, and the temple is the immediate glory presence of God. Okay, that's what makes them all... Uh, equal at some level, or at least pictures of each other. By the way, if you would want to see this for yourselves and make sure that I'm not just making this up, uh, you can read Genesis 1 to 3, Exodus 35 to 40, and uh, 1 Kings 7 to 8. Put those back to back. It'd be a fun exercise if you wanted to uh, piece all the little um, uh, intricacies of each of those together to see how God is giving us the same picture in each. Um, feel free to do so. So, if there is a temple, there must be priests to work in those temples. And if Eden is a temple on the earth, then Adam, God's first son, is God's first priest. We don't have to speculate about this, though. Moses tells us this explicitly. If you go over to Genesis 2, Genesis 2, starting all the way back in the beginning here, in verse 15, Scripture is breathed out by God, and every single word is intentionally put where it is put to tell us something. In Genesis 2.15, uh, after God creates the garden, sets it in the east, forms man from the dust to the ground, we are told this, Genesis 
The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to do two things. To work it and keep it. So to work it and keep it. Those are important words. God places man in the garden for this specific job. Uh, And we're going to look at each of these words and how they are used throughout the Old Testament. The second one, the phrase to keep there, uh, it comes up throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Usually this word is translated serving as guard or keeping guard. Every time uh, this word is used in the Old Testament, without exception, it is used to refer to the job of priests outside of the tabernacle or temple. Go over to Numbers chapter 3. Numbers chapter 3. Verses 7 to 8. I'll start in verse 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Uh, All of those words are translated... Those are the exact same words in Hebrew that are used for Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Adam's job as a priest is to keep guard. We're told later in Scripture, 1 Chronicles 23, 32, uh, Ezekiel 44, 14, Nehemiah 12, 45. The job of the priest is to be a guardian of God's house. Uh, He is to be, sometimes it's even translated, gatekeeper. Uh, That's the job of the priest. The Aaronic and Levitical priests fulfilled their duty to keep guard through proper worship, through offering sacrifices, and ridding Israel of uncleanness. Uh, We want to focus on that last part for a moment, though. Priests offer sacrifice. However, that is not the totality of their mission. They are guards of God's house. And what does this mean? In short, it means that they keep uncleanness away from God. We see immediately, then, how Adam failed at his job as a priest. When the uncleanness of the serpent's words came against God's holy word, Adam had a duty to do one thing, drive away the serpent, and he didn't. So instead, Adam was driven away, and a new priest was set outside the garden temple. The cherubim with the flaming sword were told in Genesis 3.24 that this angel is guarding the way to the tree of life. Same word, what Adam was supposed to do, now the angel takes his place. The angel takes the place of the new priest, in Adam's place because he failed at his job to guard the way. As time goes on, however, though, God gives Israel a new and portable garden, the temple, excuse me, the tabernacle, as they are journeying toward their more permanent garden, the promised land. We're told that the Levites specifically are given the privilege of guarding God's new garden. And here's the big question. Why why does God choose the Levites? Was that just a you know, mere sovereign decision of God? Well, yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, yeah. The Levi's uh, propensity to, to uh, violence? Yes, absolutely. Uh, what Mr. It, Munchausen, right? Munch, yeah. What is it? Meinshausen. Meinshausen. Okay, apologies for that. What Mr. Meinshausen just said. They have a, this propensity toward violence. Okay, what is he talking about? Go over to Exodus 32. Let me show you what he has led us to here. Moses goes up the mountain and receives the law. 
from God on Sinai. Being faithful to God. What's up? Golden calf, right? He comes down the mountain with the law, and the first thing he sees is that the God who let, led Israel out of the Exodus has been completely betrayed. So Moses says this, look at Exodus 32, 25 to 29. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, that they had begun a rebellion, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. The sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses. That day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. Each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Difficult passage. All right, the reason that the Levites are chosen is because of their violent tendencies. And this actually goes back. These sons of Levi are obviously sons of a man named Levi, who was one of the um, uh, 12 sons of Israel. Well, there's a very interesting story in Genesis chapter 34. Uh, in Genesis chapter 34, we find uh, a story about the defiling of Dinah. Okay, Dinah was one of the sisters of the 12 sons of Israel. And a man named Shechem had come along, Genesis 34, and had actually uh, taken Dinah away from her brothers and raped her. All right. So what ends up happening is uh, Shechem's father, Hamor, tries to come to the 12 brothers and he says, look, everything's going to be all right. We'll fix this. They'll just get married. Okay, not, not a big issue. We'll just pretend like this didn't happen. Uh, and the brothers say, well, think about it. Okay, that sounds fine. But if you want to marry one of our people, you must become like us. You must serve our God. You must be circumcised, he tells them. Okay? So all the men of Shechem, Hamor comes to them as their leader and says, all right, every one of you must be circumcised so we can fix my son's mistake here. Everybody's circumcised. And that night, okay, while all the men of Shechem are uh, completely incapacitated, Levi straps on his sword and goes into Shechem's camp and totally obliterates it. Okay. Kills every one of Hamor's clans. So Levites follow in this line of their father Levi. Okay. They are always bearing swords. They are always guarding God's house and God's people. Uh, that's what they are known for all throughout the Old Testament. And because of this, they're given an honorific title. In Numbers chapter 8, verse 14, we're told that the Levites, in a very special way, are God's firstborn sons. That's uh, Numbers 8, 14 through 19. They are like little Adams running around the garden with swords to protect the garden against any serpent, as they've already proven themselves capable of doing. We're also told in the same passage in Numbers 8, and back in Numbers 4 as well, that uh, before a priest could begin exercising his duty of guarding, he needed to be 30 years old, and before he began guarding, 
he must go through a baptism. Okay? He has to be ritually sprinkled with water as a symbol of his purity, that he himself is uh, qualified to keep guard over God's house. So that's the full picture of what it means to be a priest. As time goes on, however, we see that these priests, much like their forefather Adam, the first son of God, fail to keep guard of God's temple against serpents, and they allow God's bride, his people, to go astray. It all begins to go downhill in 1 Samuel when we meet Eli, uh, the corpulent priest who spends his days sitting around while his sons run amok. Sitting is exactly the opposite uh, uh, picture of priestly activity in the Old Testament. Every time we see priests in Scripture, we are told that they are standing and attending to their work at the gate of the tabernacle. Numbers 16.9, Deuteronomy 10.8, Hebrews 10.11-12 tells us priests stand daily. Priests stand daily. So Levi, uh, Eli is sitting. Sitting is for enthroned kings. Ministering and guarding is for priests. So when the prophets come along, part of their pronouncement of judgment and hope include several indictments against idle priests. That's what the whole book of Micah is about, for instance. An indication that in the future there is going to be a restoration of a new priesthood after the exile. More specifically, there's going to be one new priest. We're told about him in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 7. We're told that he's going to form this new set of Levitical guards. Jeremiah 33:22 says this, as the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister before me. God is going to cause a lot of people to become guards of his house, not just this particular tribe. So the question is, well, okay, in the new covenant, that's Jeremiah 33, right, where we get the same promises uh, just before about God giving his people a new heart, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Where do we see the new priesthood now? Where is this new Levitical priesthood? We know, of course, that this is ultimately pointing to Jesus, right? All of Scripture is about Christ. But Jesus, we are told, is a new priest in Hebrews 7, is in the order of Melchizedek. However, in his Melchizedekian priesthood, which we'll return to in just a moment, Jesus also fulfills the type of the Levitical priesthood. Much like those priests of the Old Testament, the first thing that we see Jesus do in the Gospels when he begins his earthly ministry is receive a baptism from John at the age of 30, matching the ceremony for the priestly ordination. We're told that Jesus is declared by a voice from heaven to be God's beloved son, just like the Levitical priests, um, like Adam and like the Levites. Throughout his ministry, Jesus guards God's house through his teaching. I think I mentioned last week, uh, the, uh, the incredibly intricate details of Luke chapter 20. Uh, read it sometime. Compare it to Genesis chapters 1 through 3. In Luke chapter 20, we see Jesus giving this parable about a vineyard that God planted, planted this garden that God planted. And in the middle of it, uh, halfway through his teachings, we're told that the Pharisees creep up. And it says that they craftily approach them. It's the same word that's used for the serpent, Genesis chapter 3. Jesus deals with them swiftly, uh, and guards God's garden against them, uh, disarming them. In the end, he guards his bride. Jesus guards his bride, the church, against the serpent by crushing his head with his bitten heel in the death and resurrection. As a true priest, Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice in order to, God's guard, God, 
to guard God's house. Thus, as was promised in our Jeremiah reading, when we turn to Acts, we see that Jesus makes the disciples into new guardian Levites. Go over to Acts chapter 2. Remember what we just read in Exodus, the reason that the Levites are chosen? is because when Moses comes down the mountain with the law, they're not, Israel's not doing right, they're worshiping the golden calf. So the Levites strap on their swords and they begin cutting down their brothers. How many did they cut down? Remember? What was the number? Yeah, 3,000, right? It says about 3,000. When we turn to Acts chapter 2, which we know as the day of Pentecost, it's verse 1, day of Pentecost, uh, quiz for you, what, what is Pentecost about? What was the Feast of Pentecost? Why did, they, why did Israel celebrate that in the Old Testament? What's celebrated at the Feast of Pentecost? Do you remember? Pentecost is the celebration of the giving of the law. It's 50 days after, Penta, right, means five. Pentecost is 50 days after Israel is taken out of Egypt. And on that 50th day is when Moses comes down the mountain with the law for the people. Okay? And on the first day of Pentecost is when the Levites struck down the 3,000 for their rebellion okay, at the golden calf incident. So let's see what happens here. Uh, what about this day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were gathered together in one place, that is the disciples. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in other tongues as God gave them utterance. So the disciples are waiting, sitting for the Holy Spirit, as Jesus has instructed them to do. The Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Peter gets up, you'll remember, preaches a sermon, right, about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is what we're told in verse 37 of chapter 2. After Peter finishes his sermon, uh, let all the house of Israel therefore know, to, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Then he says this. Luke says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? He tells them what? Repent and be baptized uh, for the washing away of your sins. So we hear, have here a day of Pentecost. New Levitical priests who cut to the heart with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we are told at the end that how many people are baptized on the day of Pentecost? About 3,000. Okay. This is the fulfillment of what happened at the first day of Pentecost in Exodus. You've got priests who cut to the heart to guard God's house with the sword of the Spirit. Uh, and we see that it, instead of resulting for death for 3,000, it results for life. Our new priesthood is a ministry of life, even though it still includes guarding. Jesus tells us several places in the New Testament that we are priests. That would be 1 Peter 2.9, we've said, Revelation 1, 5, and 6. Um, we share in that ministry. And just as the Levites were given special clothes to minister in, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.27 that we have put on Christ in our baptism, just like those priests in the Old Testament. Just as Jesus' baptism was his investiture to priesthood at the age of 30, so our baptisms are investitures with Jesus, the priest, 
and we share in his office. We are called to guard God's garden as sons of God who wield the sword of the Spirit, offering ourselves as living sacrifices, keeping uh, the serpents away from our hearts and our homes. While we faithfully guard and keep God's house in the new Adam, we are promised that our garden temple will expand until we are eternally offering the sacrifice of praise in the garden temple that comes from heaven to earth in Revelation 21. So that's what it means to be a priest, all right? But we are not just priests in the New Testament. We are a royal priesthood. And that begs another question. What does it mean to be a king? All right? If, it, if in Christ we are priests and being at least part of the picture, okay, is guarding God's house, what does it look like to be a king? Okay? How does the Old Testament present us with a kingly picture? So what is kingship? Uh, in our Western tradition, specifically in America, we don't usually associate kings with uh, uh, a good office, right? Kings are tyrannical. Kings need to uh, receive things like declarations of independence, you know? We need to get away from them, <laughs> form our own union. Kingship is oppressive and authoritarian. It keeps uh, naturally free men from enjoying their God-given, God-given pursuit of uh, liberty and happiness. Kingship does include the ability to make authoritative judgment. However, again, Scripture paints a very different picture for how we exercise the privileges of kingship. Let's return again to Adam in the garden. Adam was given two jobs. We've looked at the first one. He was called to keep the garden. He was called to guard the garden as a priest. But he's also called to work it. That's the other word used, to work and to keep uh, we've seen this twofold duty. We've looked at the keeping part. The word translated here that's rendered work, in the rest of the Old Testament, it usually uh, connotes the idea of slavery. All right? That word work that is used for Adam here, Exodus 1, that's the word when it talks about the children of Israel uh, working in Egypt. All right? It is slavish work that they are doing. In Leviticus 25, this word comes up over and over when it's talking about not to sell your brother into slavery, whether that's debt slavery or literal slavery. Uh, Jeremiah 17, uh, Isaiah 14, Israel uh, is slaves in the, Babylon, in the Babylonian captivity. Same word used. Adam is to be a slave of the garden as he takes dominion. Not in the sense of burdensome, laboriousness as we might think, but in the sense of diligent and constant care. All right? Um, he rules through service, and this kingship is one of incessant cultivation. This service furthers the border of the garden, and there is an inherent connection between the cultivation and the glorification of the garden. We'll circle back to that in a minute. So kingship is paradoxical. Right? Kingship is being high. It is being the one who takes dominion. It is being uh, the ruler of all, but it's being the top servant. It's being the chief slave. That's what it means to be a true king. And we know this inherently, right? Jesus teaches us in the New Testament. Uh, when the disciples begin bickering about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the king of kings, Jesus, does not tell them that they aren't going to be kings. He doesn't say, don't think about that. He doesn't even tell them, you know, oh, there will be no order. Okay, you're all just going to live in this harmonious, nebulous kingship. Rather, he corrects their view of what it means to be royalty. In Matthew 20, 26 and Mark 10, 43, he says, whoever would be the greatest 
must be your servant. Okay. The highest will be the lowest. In Luke twenty-two twenty-five to 26, Jesus tells the disciples that they will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. However, he adds, the kings of the Gentiles, quote, exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. That's not your kind of kingship. Let the greatest among you rather become as the youngest, like a child. Let the leader of you become as a servant. So this is the biblical picture of kingship as it moves from Adam through the rest of the scripture. Uh, ultimately, this is going to lead us to Jesus. But along the way, again, we need to look at uh, back to those 12 tribes. Okay. If the Levitical, the priestly system comes from the tribe of Levi, the kings come through which tribe? Where does the... I heard it. Judah. Judah. Right, exactly. The king comes through Judah. Again, why Judah? Bingo. Yeah. Twice this morning. Great job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. So Judah, okay, you'll remember Joseph is down in Egypt, right? He is uh, in Pharaoh's house, okay, and uh, his father, Israel, thinks that he's dead, right? His brothers had taken his, his cloak, his mantle, they ripped it up, dipped blood in it, and Israel, or Jacob, thinks his life is totally over, right? His favorite son, his beloved son, Joseph, is dead, well, when the famine comes and Israel has to journey down into Egypt to get some food, uh, there, you remember Joseph tricks them. Okay? He doesn't reveal his identity and they don't know who he is. Uh, but he says, do not come back unless you bring what? What are they supposed to bring? Benjamin, right? They have to bring Israel's new favorite son. Benjamin kind of takes the place of Joseph. And when they say, hey, Dad, we can't go back and get any more food unless we bring Benjamin, and Israel, their father, basically says, over my dead body, okay? You've taken one son from me, all right? I'm not going to let you take another one. Reuben, one of the brothers, comes up and says, uh, if you let us go back with Benjamin, I'll give you my sons as a sacrifice. If they don't come back, they will be your slaves eternally. Do whatever you want with them, okay? Doesn't take that. Israel says, nope, not a good deal. Okay, those are my grandchildren. However, Judah comes up and says, if we don't bring Benjamin back to you, you can have me as the sacrifice. Judah offers himself as the sacrifice. And for that, we are told in Genesis 49 that the scepter will never depart from Judah. Uh, the royal staff from between the ruler's feet. It doesn't make any sense for Judah to be chosen. He's not the oldest. He's not even the youngest that usurps the oldest. He's the fourth oldest. Okay, but he is chosen because true kingship is self-sacrifice. True kingship is placing yourself as the servant of all. Jesus, of course, is our ultimate picture of that. He is our ideal picture of kingship. Um, forward. Step back for just a moment. We've got a couple extra minutes. Uh, let's go to David first before we get to Jesus. David is perhaps our chief example of kingship in the Old Testament, right? You think of a king in the Old Testament, you're going to think of David. Uh, David is, the anointed, is anointed king by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. And in verse 13, we read this. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. 
David is anointed not merely by Samuel, but by the Spirit to be Israel's ruler. You'll remember that Saul was also given the Spirit's presence to rule. However, the Spirit left him after rejecting his kingship, after years of grieving him. David, though, does not immediately become Israel's king, does he? He's anointed, but the very next thing we read about David, after he is anointed the king of Israel, is 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23. After he is anointed king, David becomes a servant in Saul's house. Uh, remember, this is where he starts playing the music so that the evil spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. Uh, the first thing David does as the anointed king is he begins serving. He serves until his full coronation. Moreover, as time goes on, things get even worse for David. It doesn't get easier. You'll remember that Saul turns against him in anger and in uh, murderous envy, essentially, is what happens. David is pursued by Saul all the way down until twice in 1 Samuel, we read uh, that David is dwelling in caves. Caves in Scripture are always pictures of death. Right? Uh, anytime you find a cave coming up in the Bible, you're always going to find somebody buried there. David is dwelling among the dead. This is the king buried, essentially. The anointed king of Israel gone down into death, pursued by his enemy, to death. Before he comes up uh, by the Spirit to serve and guard Israel, David is for this sacrifice, um, declared to be son of Yahweh. He makes the covenant, you'll remember, in 2 Samuel 7, where God says there will be an eternal king on David's throne for what he does. But the point is, uh, David serves before David rules. Okay? That order is extremely important, and I wish we had more time to pull that out. So just like David in the Old Testament, the Gospel of Luke opens with a story about a new Samuel, John the Baptist. Uh, and the parallels between those two are astonishing. I'll uh, allow you to check those out for homework. Look at uh, Luke 1 through 3, the story is about John the Baptist, and then look at the story about Samuel in 1 Samuel 1 through 4. Uh, the parallels are fantastic, uh, very filling there. In Luke chapter 3, like David, Jesus is anointed as king by the prophet and given the spirit. At his baptism, Jesus is not merely made a priest by John, as we've already seen. But we read that after John, the prophet, had baptized Jesus, the heavens were open and the spirit descended on him from above like a dove in bodily form. Jesus' baptism was not merely his investiture with priesthood, but his anointing as king. Further, as David was promised, Jesus is also declared at his baptism to be the beloved son of God, David's royal son that he sings about in Psalm 2 and Psalms 110. So like Jesus' baptism is both an investiture to priesthood as well as kingship, so is his being declared the son of God. However, like David, Jesus does not immediately march into his full coronation. He spends three years serving people. Like David, Jesus even goes as far down into a tomb, into death, before he raises to exact his full royal judgment. Indeed, at baptism, Jesus is declared to be the priestly royal son of God. But at his resurrection, as Paul tells us in Romans 1, 4, he's declared to be the son of God with power, full royal authority. Jesus, like Adam, though, is tempted throughout the Gospels to take the power of the kingdom without first serving. 
right? We see this again and again as Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, Matthew 3, Luke 14. Satan says, command the stones to be made bread. Uh, you know, give everyone bread before you offer yourself as the broken, ble uh, bleeding bread of life. Satan says, bow down and worship me. Be satisfied with co-rulership with me uh, rather than being the single crucified king of the Jews. Satan says, cast yourself off the temple. Show yourself to be the one that the angels bear on a glorious throne without first showing that you are the suffering servant. When Peter takes Jesus aside privately to rebuke him for saying that he must suffer as the Christ before the kingdom comes, Jesus publicly rebukes Peter, identifying him as the devil himself for suggesting such a thing. Indeed, it is only Satan who tempts us to take dominion as kings before suffering. So it's all about kingship. Uh, make no mistake, Jesus certainly came to the earth as king and to be king. In fact, the first words out of his mouth in the Gospels, repent uh, and be, uh, and where's it at? I've lost it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ's kingdom, though, will be established through his suffering. When the Son came, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he did not come in full authority, knocking down empires at a whim, but in the form of a slave to die in service of the world's salvation. Only after his sufferings is Jesus crowned with the royal privilege of judgment. So what's significant for us, what we want to just in the last couple of minutes here talk about is how these offices are combined, okay? So it's not separated, right? In the Old Testament, it very much so is. You've got priests and kings, and never the two shall meet, right? Almost. What's highly significant is that these offices become one in Christ and the church and the royal priesthood. This is an anomaly in the Old Testament. We're told in Numbers 3 that the priesthood is explicitly for the tribe of Levi, and Genesis 49 tells us that kingship belongs to the Judites, Saul proves as a perfect example of what happens when you try to bring these two together. You'll remember in 1 Samuel 13, uh, Saul has to wait on Samuel before uh, they can go into battle. Saul ha Samuel has to come and make a sacrifice for Saul. But Saul does what? Yeah, Saul makes the sacrifice himself. Okay. Uh, that is presented to us in Scripture as Saul's downfall. Immediately after he does that, Samuel comes and declares that the kingdom has been taken away from him because he has taken upon himself privileges that only belong to the priesthood. The spirit is taken away and he is given a spirit of torment. Um, so the royal priesthood in the Old Testament is a near oxymoron. Yet like many things in God's word, there's an abiding paradox. There's exceptions to the rule that eventually become normative. And there are shadows of the royal priesthood throughout the Old Testament. Before the law, we see Adam as the chief figure right? Uh, he is serving and guarding God's house in the garden. But others would include Melchizedek, who brought bread and wine to Abraham in Genesis 14. We're told that he is uh, king of righteousness and priest of Salem. Abraham himself receives the bread and wine as, of, as symbols of the royal priesthood and offers sacrifices on Moriah, as well as fathers an entire dynasty that culminates in Christ. Yet even after the hard division between the two offices and the giving of the Mosaic law, we see that David sings of his royal priesthood in Psalm 110. We find that just a few chapters after Saul is rejected by God for transgressing the boundaries of the priest king, 
David is blessed for doing what got Saul cursed in 2 Samuel 7. Beyond these shadows, there is the coming one of Zechariah, uh, who is prophesied as the branch in chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. This branch, we are told, will emerge from Israel after, Babylon, uh, after the Babylonian exile. He will, quote, build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. He, saw, he shall sit on his royal throne, and he shall be a priest on his throne. The crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. Crown is brought into the temple in full integration. And we're even told, astonishingly, in Zechariah there, that the name of this priest king will be Joshua, or Yeshua, or in English, Jesus. Uh, so Jesus is, of course, this priest king in the order of Melchizedek. It's the same for us, the church, as we are in Christ by faith. We are priests, guardians of God's house, when we are royal priests. Paul tells us throughout the epistles that we are baptized into Christ and are therefore sons of God, the title that's used for both the Levites and the royal seat of David. Paul even goes as far as to tell us explicitly in 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3, that we will judge the world and even angels in our royal priesthood. But the question is, how do we, ex how do we exact this royal authority, this priestly authority that we've been given? Um, Romans 8. Go over to Romans 8. Got one minute, and I'll finish with this. Verses 14 through 17. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, priests and kings. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We share in the glory of Christ. We will be clothed with the robe of judicial weight and judgment over the world as royal priests if we share in his sufferings. This is precisely the picture that we see in Revelation. When John opens his vision of the end, he addresses it to those who have been made priests and kings by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 1, 5-6. However, before getting to the end, uh, where we see heaven coming to earth, as we've said, the final garden temple being brought down for us, John says that he sees the blood of the martyrs in the persecution of the church. I don't think John is talking about a special category of people there. I think rather what he's doing is giving us a prophetic picture of God's church throughout the ages. We are all to be martyrs. We are all to be witnesses unto death. We are all to be servants of the world and of one another. Heaven will come to earth not through our programs and plans, but through bearing witness with our blood. Toiling to expand our Eden with hands that are scarred and battered with the pricks and thorns, with the pricks of thorns and thistles. Through much tribulation, we enter the kingdom of God as the royal priest. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.